You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. I don't know if you noticed, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and the numbers in Catawba County are quickly rising. Perhaps more urgent than that is that there are powerful forces spreading in our culture that are seeking to take away liberties from us that we would say were not for the government to give or to take away, but they were granted to us by God. On top of that, some of you are concerned this morning about what the future is going to hold and for your personal economy. And yet, we're gathered this morning not to talk about biology or political activism or economics, but we've gathered this morning to open up an ancient book and to talk about doctrine. And it is not as if we're saying that we don't want to be relevant. What we're saying is, that there are realities that are even more urgent than the light and momentary afflictions that we're facing right now as a people. And the book of Philippians itself tells us that we're not crazy. Here we have the Apostle Paul, who is being held captive in a Roman prison as a prisoner of the government, stripped of all of his rights, stripped of his money, stripped of his liberty, and facing imminent death by execution, and you tell me what's on his mind. And the answer is doctrine, truth, the gospel, Jesus. Let me, let me start with what may seem like a strange place with a survey by a show of hands um, I, I want to see how many of you think that bragging is a good thing okay how about how many of you think bragging is a bad thing okay Romans 3.27 comes in mind that if we understand the truth about our sin and Jesus' free grace then Paul says where then is boasting Where's bragging? And the answer is, it is excluded. It's completely done away with. It won't happen. But, but even, even though we know intellectually and morally that pride and bragging is out of bounds for the believer, um, it doesn't change the fact that we're all prone to do it, at least in our hearts. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you, do you know what I mean when I'm talking about the satisfaction that comes with being right? You save something, somebody else says something different, and then when it turns out that you are right, that I told everybody moment feels so good. 
We're so committed to that I told you moment that we may have someone that we love bleeding out on the ground because they did something stupid that we told them not to do. But in that moment, more urgent than calling 911 is for you to get down and remind them, I told you not to do it. Or when you just are better at something. Or you have something that's better than somebody else's. And, and really anything will do, right? I mean, grades, looks, car, yard, garden, clothes, lawnmower, chainsaw, kids, paycheck, sermon, <laughs> prayer. Yours is just better. It feels good. The only way I think to make it even better is especially to have your competitor, who usually don't know you're competing with them, your competitor to acknowledge your superiority. Or how about when you accomplish something? You like how that feels, don't you? You finish a project and you want everybody to come over and stand back and admire it. And praise it. And then praise you. All these trophies yours? This, this home remodel? Did you, did you do this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get the design from a magazine. I, I, I did that one too. I cut a stack of wood and I want everybody to come out of the house and see it. And I welcome comments about how tall it is and how tightly packed my wood stack is. Have you lost weight? You're just looking smaller, but you're not just smaller. Like, are you, are you, ex like, you're getting in shape. This feels good. Um, here's one for you. Walk in a room and you overhear someone praising you to someone else. And you might act like you don't like that sort of thing. And maybe you're thinking, you know, Tommy, I don't like that sort of thing. I really, I don't like it when people draw attention to me. In fact, I would like to be known and admired as someone who doesn't like any attention on themselves. Maybe you don't relate to any of these silly examples, but does anybody want to argue that you're not tempted with pride? So here's my question. Why are pride and praise so tempting? And here's the answer. Because they feel so good. But here's the problem, and we really have multiple problems, but here's, here's part of the problem. This high that comes with pride and praise are so short-lived and so fragile. They don't, it doesn't matter what you achieve from weight loss to 12-point buck to 4.0 to MVP to CEO to Super Bowl to the presidency. That high doesn't last long, and it's very fragile. 
the weight that you lost seems like it's determined to get back onto your waistline. And even if it doesn't, wrinkles are happy to take place of your roles. Brag on that deer and somebody's going to pull out their cell phone and show you a picture of their deer that's better than your deer. Pride's highs are short-lived and so fragile. And because they're so short-lived and fragile, pride and praise are ultimately unsatisfying. But even more urgent than the fact that pride and praise are unsatisfying is, is the fact that they're insulting to God. You think about this. Read, read the Bible and, and you tell me, what, what does God use to describe what pride and, and, and chasing after things that puff us up and satisfy. How does he describe that? And the answer is adultery. And the reality is there's nothing that you can do that is more insulting to your spouse than to commit adultery. That's why I'm thankful to preach this text. God, as he so often does, he offers us something better than the fragile, fleeting feelings of self-admiration. He offers us Jesus. Open your Bible with me to Ephesians, I mean to Philippians chapter 3. And I was supposed to preach down to verse 11, but I'm really not going to make it except to verse 9. Sorry. And um, I'm going to start in verse 1 because it really does, is dependent on verse 1. Finally, my brethren, you rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection 
from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess this morning that if anything of any lasting value other than just some fleeting feelings of shame or encouragement, it's going to be because you move. Father, I pray for believers that you would will and you would work so that, so, that, so that we, our hearts, would will and work according to your good pleasure. That's from you. If we are to change, it will be because you worked it into our hearts. Lord, I pray this morning for every unbeliever, for every child. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, and they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among all of those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to spend just a second um, uh, to review since verses 11 through 9 are so connected with verses 1 through 6. And um, so just quickly, last week, um, we saw in verse 1 this call, this call to rejoice. In in verse 2, we saw a series of cautions uh, against those who would distract us from focusing on Jesus' perfection to put our attention on our performance. And then in verse 3, we have this compact summary of what it is to be a Christian. And and we notice in this text, lots of talk about circumcision, verse 2, and then in verse 3, in actuality, verse 4, but specifically in verse 5. And you remember that circumcision was meant to mark off the people of God as those who love Him and trust Him and live to serve Him. But the thing about the problem that Paul is warning about, how many male Jews were circumcised? All, all of them. All of them. But, but did all of them love and trust and live to serve God? No. Like, let's, let's just think about it. Well, what are some famous examples from the Gospels of people who bore the marks of the people of God who love Him, serve Him, and, and, and live to serve Him, but, but weren't actually loving, trusting, and serving Him in their hearts? The Pharisees. That's exactly right. Had the marks, but not the heart. I, I think the older brother and the prodigal son is a great example. All the marks of someone who obeyed. How, how many of his daddy's instructions? All of them. But secretly in his heart was not trust and love for his daddy, but rather bitterness towards his daddy. See, I can go this afternoon and get a Navy SEAL trident tattooed on my bicep but it would make me a Navy SEAL I'm not a Navy SEAL but plenty of people have outward markings and even outward behavior but they don't belong to God they don't love Him 
They love themselves. They don't trust Him. They trust themselves. They don't live to serve Him. They live to serve themselves. Paul calls people like that the false circumcision. They have the tattoo, but they don't have a new heart. Now, I can't go into detail here, but in verse 3, Paul makes this radical statement. He says of believers that we are the true circumcision. We may or may not have the mark. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles. But we, the church, the people of God, we, those who are born again, we who are trusting in Christ, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. What do you think he's worshiping the Spirit of God as opposed to what? Who, who serve God in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, rather than in the power of themselves, in the power of the flesh. We are those who worship in the Spirit of God. And we glory, we boast, we brag, we glory in Christ Jesus as opposed to those who brag about themselves. And, this is the mark of the Christian, we put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. Which brings us verse 7 where Paul unpacks I believe what verse 3 looks like in real life the first thing he says that and this is point 1 if you're taking notes that clinging to Jesus makes the things I used to brag about embarrassing clinging to Jesus when I trust him When I know that I'm standing before God, not with my record of performance, but with His record of performance, I'm trusting Him. Me clinging to Jesus makes the things that I used to brag about embarrassing. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is a remarkable statement. Notice the comparison here between gain or profit and loss. The things Paul used to think were gains for him. The, the things Paul used to think, these are the things I have going for me. Those things, he said, those things that he used to brag about are now, in his mind, liabilities. They don't bring him closer to God. In fact, truth be known, they draw him away from God. Look at, the, look at his list, verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that didn't turn away from God in the beginning, Judah and Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, we'll talk about that in just a second, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. You tell me, if you really do think that you come from the right bloodline, that you performed your religious duty before the Lord with great zeal and commitment to the point that you could say with a straight face and really believe it in your heart that when it comes to the righteousness which is in the law, verse 6, that you are found blameless. If you actually believe that, do you need a Savior who offers forgiveness to failures and grace to the guilty? The answer is no way. 
In fact, the idea of a Savior is insulting. Because needing a Savior implies deep need. It implies sin. And the last thing on earth that self-righteous people want to happen is to have their sin pointed out. If you don't believe me, try it. Try having a frank conversation with a self-righteous person about their sin. And let me tell you what will happen. They'll get defensive. But they won't be defensive for long. Because they'll quickly shift their strategy from offense or from defense to offense and begin sharing their insight into your flaws that just happen to be more serious than theirs. Read the Gospels. This is, this is the pattern in Jesus' life. Jesus frankly speaks to the self-righteous about their sin, and then what do the self-righteous do? They get together, and they set up accountability groups. Let's keep on pointing out each other's sin. No, they get together, and they conspire of how they're going to kill him. That's what the self-righteous do. Paul knows all about that. That's what the first part of verse 6 is all about. Just like the other Pharisees, Paul's so committed to building his own record of goodness that he zealously persecuted those Jesus freaks who kept preaching about personal sin and the need of free grace. And this is, the, this is the clear, sad irony. Those who are most proud of their service to God end up hating the very God they claim to be serving because regardless of the service that they conjure up and perform in the flesh, they always have God saying, well, that's not really what I'm looking for. Does this sound familiar? If, if I had time, I was, this is my story of how me making a profession of faith and then living with all of the might that Tommy Hullett could conjure up in himself to be holy and ending up hating God who I claim to be serving. It's just what happens to those who are in the flesh. So let me plead with you. Let me plead with you to pay very close attention to to what your heart does when it is confronted with sin. By God or by people. When your sin is exposed, if you respond in your heart or with your lips or with your action by defending yourself or covering it up, or blaming somebody, or blaming something else, or making excuses, or attacking the person who confronts you. That ought to be like sirens going off in your mind that you are proud and clinging to your own righteousness instead of clinging to the sin-exposing, sin-conquering Savior. Uncover your ears and hear those sirens, and then repent. That's what verse 7 is. It really is is a verse about Paul's repentance. He changed his mind. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost. But I want you to notice what Paul's repenting of. He's not repenting of the things that we tend to repent of. Of the vileness in our hearts. the, the, The immorality that's in our hearts. Paul is repenting of his goodness. 
He's repenting of his self-imagined goodness. This whole record of religion and zeal and obedience to all the rules that used to make him so proud, he now considers it all a liability. It's a loss. Why? Look at verse 7. For the sake of Christ. In other words, he used to sit down and write out a list in his mind of all the things he had going for him. But now he's repented. And on that list of all the things he has going for him, there's only one thing written. Jesus. Secondly, clinging to Jesus makes everything else seem like a total waste of time. Look at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul hasn't just severed his loyalty to his own record of goodness. What else has he forsaken? What else has he given up freely? Verse 8. I have suffered the loss of all things. Picture a set of scales. And on this side of the scales, we have Jesus. And on this side of the scales, we have everything else in life that lives in competition to us seeking Him. Here's Jesus, and then here's everything else in our lives, in our hearts, in our mind, that stands in competition for us pressing in to know Jesus. And in reality, that's, that's how it all Jesus is in this competition with all these other things that we desire. Paul says knowing Jesus is of surpassing value. Let, let's think about this. What, what, let's think about this together. I'm really going to ask a question. What kind of things keep you from striving to know Christ? What are they? What's your list? Yourself? What else? Work, children, we need to learn to serve Christ while serving children. Yeah, that's right. What else? Appreciation. Yeah, that's right. What else? Unforgiveness. Bitterness in our hearts. Somebody say money. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of stuff. I didn't have a hard time making my list. Comfort. Getting my list done, sleep, exercise. Paul puts it all on the scales. And in comparison to Jesus, he says, all that stuff is rubbish. He actually is using a word that's borderline vulgar. It's dung. You can have all this world, Paul says. Just give me Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man hid and found and hid again. And from the joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has. And he buys that field. 
That's what Paul's talking about. Paul says, in comparison to Jesus, all this other stuff that keeps me from him, this is a big waste of time. Thirdly, clinging to Jesus gives me the validation that my heart craves. Cole, this is what you're talking about. Look at verse 9. I'll start in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 9 needs a whole sermon, but I have to be brief. And so I'm going to have to be pointed, and you're going to have to think, and you're going to have to be honest. You have to focus, because we've got a mower back here we're competing with. We're going to have to focus in here, because verse 9 is life-changing. It is so important. So work, work. Let's start here. You tell me, why is gossip so tempting? It's self-validating. When I have something juicy to share about somebody else, it makes me feel good about me. Why is it that in conversations... If you know something other people don't know. Or if you have a story that's better than their story that they're telling. Why is it so tempting and so satisfying to put it out there? Why is it so tempting to name drop? Why is it, why does winning feel so good and failing feel so rotten? Why is the praise and the applause of people so addictive and criticism so deflating? I have to be so quick, but I want to submit to you that we all know something is bad wrong with us. And that by nature, we are all on an unadmitted mission to prove ourselves. To convince ourselves and everybody else that we think matters that we matter that we're worth the carbon footprint that our life is costing that's verses 5 through 6 Paul thought he was somebody because of his last name as it were because of his achievements in the highest echelons of Jewish society, because of his commitment and zeal, because of his moral purity. That's not just Paul's story. You think about it. You think about the things you're proud of. Some of you are proud of your stuff, especially if it's better than my stuff, right? Some of you are proud of your smarts. We're proud of our schooling. We're proud of our successes. We're proud of our status, our standards, our sincerity, our shape, our style. This gets so messed up that 
that Christians can be proud if their doctrine is right. We're on this quest to prove ourselves. And I want to be clear, this quest is natural, this quest is understandable. But this quest is damning. It's absolutely contradictory to the gospel. You stay on this quest, and here's what you'll get. You'll get a a very flattering eulogy at your funeral. In a very uncomfortable place in hell. You tell me, as the mission of Jesus go, take what I've given you and become somebody. Is the message of Jesus, go, make a name for yourself, big enough to silence the nagging feeling that you are not as good as you ought to be? Is that the message of Jesus? The message of Jesus is, you have failed. You imagine yourself to be rich. You imagine yourself to be strong. You imagine yourself to be self-sufficient. And at very least, full of potential. But you are in reality, in the eyes of the only one who matters, and I quote, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And you need more than self-respect. And you need more than self-esteem. And you need more than the whole wall of trophies. And you need more than the admiration of all your peers. You need a Savior. The single message of the Bible is that you need a Savior. And a Savior has come. A Savior who not only was the way we ought to be, but then became the way we are. Became wretched. Became miserable. Became poor became naked for us in our place. And then, receivable by faith, He offers His perfection in exchange for our sin and failure. This is all over the Bible. I'll just give you just a little hint. To turn over to Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Go left in your Bibles from Philippians to the big book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. I want you to see it. Look at verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, then he's got something to boast about. but he won't be boasting before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and what happened? It was credited to him as righteousness. Whose righteousness? Whose record became his? Whose perfection? 
Chapter 3, verse 22 says, it was the very righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. You tell me, what's missing from that list? Jesus became wisdom from God, and righteousness. Oh, but I still got to be sanctified. Oh, no, Jesus became your sanctification. Oh, but it's not compl- well, he became your redemption. You tell me, what's, le- what's missing from that list? Answer, nothing is missing from that list. Jesus is everything. But, but most important, this message is right here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You tell me, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Whose record do you want to show up with? Yours? When Jesus offers you His, you really want to show up with your puny trophy case? And pull out your iPhone 12 and show him the pictures of your big buck. And make you so proud of who you are. Or do you want to show up with the perfection of Jesus? Look back at chapter 2. Look what he says. Being found, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? 99.99% obedient? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What what is it that's written on Jesus' resume? And the answer is perfect obedience. Perfection. He's offering you his resume. He's offering you his record. Repent of yours. And by faith, receive his. Let me tell you what will happen if we get this. If we repent of our pride and self-exaltation and our striving to prove ourselves, to validate ourselves, and trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ, your days of having to prove yourself will be over. Your days of having to defend yourself will be over. Your days of living for the praise of people and running from blame will be over. 
Your days of having to be first will be over. Your days of pretending and trying to bring everybody else into your little charade, you pretending that you got it all together, those days will be over. Your days of determining your value based on what the mirror says will be over. Your days of determining your value based on what your peers think about you or your spouse or your children will be over. Your your days of, 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 of demanding respect will be over. Your days of grumbling and complaining because you think you deserve better will be over. Your days of carrying around guilt for confessed sin will be over. Your days of living this life on this roller coaster, and some of you know exactly what I mean, this roller coaster where when you're performing, you feel great. And you feel great about you and you feel great about Jesus. But then on those days when you're all messed up, when you feel terrible, those days will be over. If you're trusting in Jesus, His perfect record is yours. Which means that your days of bragging will be over. Or maybe they'll just be getting started. Here's what I mean. Look back at verse 3. See, those who trust in Christ, it's not that they never brag, it's not that they never boast. So they don't boast in themselves. They don't brag about themselves. They glory. Literally, the word, they brag about Christ. And put no confidence in their flesh. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Listen, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we totally understand why Festus thought Paul was absolutely out of his mind. It's nuts to think that we, with all of our flaws and all of our failures, could be counted perfect in, in your sight. Father in heaven, I pray that you would work and you would give us grace to believe that gospel today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.